All right. So I'm going to try doing something I'm not very good at tonight, and that's do two things at a time. We'll see how this goes. Clicker and talk. We'll see how that goes. All right. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to be looking at the, the first passage tonight that Ollie read for us. It's that really easy passage about the woman and the bread. Um, yeah, so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you settle our hearts and our minds. We pray that you ready us to hear this part of the gospel. Please help us understand it. Please challenge us through it. And please help us love you more as a result of this and our neighbour as ourself. Amen. So I'm not sure if there's more of a live issue at the moment than racism. Uh, with the recent death of George Floyd, BLM, Black Lives Matter, has been all over social media and all through the streets throughout the world. Statues are toppling and slogans are being spray-painted on the statues. No pride in genocide, change the date. They're both Captain Cook statues. The, the, the one statue, and uh, Churchill was a racist. And all that came together with Reconciliation Week a, a couple of weeks back when our past and present treatment of Indigenous people came to the fore, and so it should. The topic of racism is so live at the moment that I, I sort of moved forward into this topic with trepidation. But the passage in Matthew's Gospel that we read is about racism, and so I have to go there. Uh, the ABC um, tells us that 77% of Australians believe there is a lot of racism in Australia these days, and the majority of Australians, 56%, agree that white people have an unfair advantage in Australia. And so it's something we need to talk about. And of course, there's only so much that can be said in a 20 or so minute sermon, but I think Jesus has something really important for us to learn in this passage. Though you might be thinking, haven't Christians contributed to this problem as much as anybody? Haven't Christian missionaries crushed cultural and racial diversity wherever they've gone? So just think of the Aboriginal missions of the 18th and 19th centuries. Less than 100 years ago, the government, hand in hand with the churches, took kids away and put them on these missions to educate them in Christian ideals. The fact that that happened and was helped by churches is tragic. And it's something that we should lament over, that, that people in the name of Christ, Christians, did this. And so in many ways, maybe it's best that I just be quiet now. I'm going to beg upon your generosity and move forward. Christians with even a hint of racism get something really wrong. And so at risk of us getting this wrong as well, let's move forward and look at the passage. So verse 21 of chapter 15 in Matthew's Gospel tells us that this passage is about race. Verse 21, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre 
and Sidon. That place he was in was Gennesaret. That's where we were last week. And Jesus had the harshest words to say to the people in Gennesaret. Gennesaret is in the north of Israel. And he was speaking to the most nationalistic Jews that there were. And he offended them. He's really good at doing that to these people. Um, Jesus left there and went to Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon is Gentile territory. And it's not only Gentile territory, it's, it's the heartland of what was former Canaan. And if you, if you um, know the Old Testament scriptures, you'll know that Canaan were a trip up to the Israelites. Canaan, the Canaanites caused the Israelites to worship foreign idols. The Canaanites have a bad name, a bad rap when it comes to the Israelites' view of them. And so we're entering idol-worshipping Gentile territory. And for anyone like the Pharisees or, or, or uh, scribes, this was risky. This is, this is a country reeking of defilement. Verse 22. Then, uh, just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. So the more detail we get here, the more this is turning into a nightmare for the nationalistic Jew. Jesus and his disciples are entering Gentile territory and they're being approached by a Canaanite, that's an unclean woman, whose daughter is demon-possessed. You can't get any more defiled than that, according to the Israelite. And here we read something surprising and maybe offensive the way Jesus and the disciples respond to this woman. And I might add, it's surprising to us, but it wouldn't have been surprising to any Israelites reading this. So verse 23, But Jesus didn't answer her at all. He ignored her. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus doesn't answer the woman, but he answers his disciples, and the disciples just want her to go away. It all seems very dismissive, very uncaring, and maybe even racist. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're feeling uncomfortable at this moment. And when Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, he's actually telling the truth. The Canaanite woman knew that. She calls out Jesus, son of David. Son of David is, is a, a title that is for the Messiah, the King of Israel. The King of Israel. He's the King of Israel. God made promises to Israel to be their God and to care for them as a shepherd does his sheep. And Jesus is coming through on God's promises to Israel. That's why he was born in Israel. That's why the focus of his ministry was in Israel. That's why he taught and healed in Israel. He was coming through on God's promises to Israel. Jesus was the expression of God's faithfulness to Israel. But I think the attitudes of the disciples is a little different. So Israel, being chosen by God, meant that they had a job to do. Being chosen by God wasn't just to make them feel good. It meant they had a job to do. They were, they were to be the servant nation, serving the people around them. They were to be a light to the world, a blessing to all nations. But being chosen by God and having a history where God had been involved in their history and having 
laws that were derivative from God, that can be a dangerous thing. That can so easily lead to pride, cultural and racial pride. And I think at this point, we're beginning to see what racism is at its root. At the root of racism is pride, individually, culturally, and racially. A sense that me and my ways are superior. And, and this attitude echoes throughout history. And it's so destructive and ugly. So, for instance, from this book, I've got a few quotes. A Wesleyan missionary, Samuel Lee, described Aboriginal people as barbarians to whom had been assigned the lowest place in the scale of the intellect. That's coming from a place of pride and cultural superiority. The Lutheran missionary, William Schmidt, who uh, wrote that Aboriginal people are the lowest in the scale of the human race. This is hideous. And it's in the church's history. And this assessment of Aboriginal people stems from an attitude of heart that thinks they're superior, pride, cultural, racial superiority. And if at the heart of racism is pride, then we return to a very familiar theme of Jesus' ministry. Racism is a heart problem. And if it's a heart problem, then this isn't just a problem for those of a particular political stripe or for the religious or for the white Western Europeans. This is a human problem. And if it's a heart problem, then ultimately the solutions that don't involve heart change won't work. So to, to continue on from Andrew's very memorable analogy from last week, if it's a heart problem and it hasn't been dealt with, we can busily do all sorts of things to deal with racism. But if the heart hasn't been dealt with, doing those things will be like walking around the house with dog on your shoes. Working for legislative and educative change is vitally important in this space. Vitally important. But if pride hasn't been dealt with, then we might silent racism, silence racism, but we'll find another group to put down and feel superior over. Now, if you're feeling squeamish now, it's going to get worse. Let's get to verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. So one of the things you learn really quickly when you, when you get to know Jesus in the Gospels that is that he's not afraid to offend. Last week, he went straight to the group that everyone respected, the most respected people, and straight to their faces said, you hypocrites. And they took offense. So you really want to be slow to take offense at Jesus. And as we work out what he means in verse 26, we can put it beyond doubt that Jesus isn't a racist. I'm not sure if you've thought that he is before or that you're thinking that he is now, but I think we can put it beyond doubt. Last week, like I said, Jesus had the harshest words to say to the nationalistic Jews, the Jews that represented their people. 
Jesus had come for the lost sheep of Israel, but he, that does not mean he'd come to defend national or ethnic, ethnic Israel and what it had become. And we've already seen in chapter 8 that a Gentile has received the highest commendation so far from Jesus. And in chapter 11, Jesus condemns Jewish cities and lifts up Gentile cities. That's all to say that we've got to read this with care. Verse 25, again, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. First, basically, where all dogs when it comes to this mini parable. And I'm saying that seriously. In this mini parable, we are the Gentile dogs. And let it never be forgotten. I think we are. I'm not sure if there are um, Jewish people here. Um, uh, and let it never be forgotten that we worship a Middle Eastern brown Jewish tradie. But in its context, I think Jesus is challenging both the Canaanite woman and the disciples. And I think he's doing it like a master teacher. He's a, he's a rabbi. So for the Canaanite woman, Jesus, I think, is awkwardly drawing, her out, drawing out her desperation to a point of challenge. Will her pride mean she responds with offense? That's the challenge. Now, this is, silent, uh, this is awkward for us, and we're feeling it on behalf of the Canaanite woman but Jesus does the same to all of us. Jesus goes straight for our pride and he tells us that we're more undeserving of and unentitled to his grace than we'd ever believe. That's what he says about us. Jesus is saying to the woman, you have no right to God's mercy, especially you, you unclean Gentile. But she knows it and she needs Jesus. And she responds, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. It's an astounding response, and it shows an attitude of heart that, although it's slightly offensive to our modern liberal ears, it's an attitude of heart that we all need. I don't know if these words sound familiar to you, not because you've read them before in the, in the gospel, but because you've sort of prayed a prayer like this. Every time we receive the Lord's Supper, we pray a prayer called the Prayer of Humble Access. And it's a prayer based on this passage. We pray this prayer. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Do you see her attitude of heart? Her willingness to, to, to admit that she is undeserving and unentitled, is an attitude of heart that we all need to have. And in fact, our spiritual health is sort of dependent on this. The more you see yourself as unentitled and undeserving, the more thankful and joyful and praiseful you'll be when, when God continues to give you all the good things that he gives you. This is a really important posture of the heart for a Christian. And it's the same attitude of heart that cuts at the root of racism. You can't be superior over anyone if you see yourself like this, undeserving, unentitled. But not only does it cut at pride, I think it asks us the question, will we engage with Jesus on our own terms or on his terms? 
Uh, Jesus isn't like a plasticine figurine that can be shaped however we like. Jesus is how we get to know him as we get to know him in the Gospels. And we need to respond to him on his terms. Jesus sets the terms and the woman responds so beautifully to his terms. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. We don't mould Jesus. He moulds us. He sets the terms. We learn from him. He sets the trajectory of our lives. And man, this is an important lesson. We are all tempted to mould Jesus to be like what we want him to be like. But this just doesn't work. So that was the challenge for the Canaanite woman. The challenge for the disciples comes with what happens next. So verse 28. So, so far the disciples wouldn't have been surprised with anything Jesus had done, all the disciples. I mean, for any Israelite watching on, they're like, yep, that's how you treat a Gentile dog. That's how you, that's how you treat a Gentile dog. And then verse 28 comes along. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's here that we see that Jesus never saw this woman as a dog. He was using language that was common at the time, but he does this so that when she responds the way she does, he completely explodes the categories they had for her. She's no Gentile dog. He looked her in the eye. Woman, great is your faith. There are only two people in the Gospel of Matthew that have been described by Jesus as having great faith. And they're both Gentiles, and one of them is this woman. She's the hero in the story. That's why we've based a prayer on her faith. It's an understatement to say that this was a challenge for the disciples. They're continually described in the Gospels as having little faith. But here, this Gentile dog has great faith. She's been commended in a way that they never have been commended, and it shatters their categories, and it challenges them to ask, will they see racial outsiders as Jesus does? Will they see dignity in all peoples and in all cultures? Now, (laughs) this isn't that well transformative for us because we're so used to seeing cultures, all cultures and all peoples as worthy or as, as having dignity and not being outsiders to the kingdom of God. And one reason we see people like that is because of the influence of the gospel. It really is. Jesus sets up an expectation here. There's no outsider when it comes to the kingdom of God. There is no outsider when it comes to the kingdom of God. Who do you think in your life is too far from God? I can think of people in my life. And what we learn here is that it's not true. The disciples wouldn't have been able to imagine a Gentile, Canaanite woman receiving such a commendation from Jesus. Such a welcome, although hidden for a while. Who can't you imagine? 
So John Harris, he's the author of that book I showed you before, One Blood, and he describes the book as a warts and all book written by someone who loves the church, understands mission, and knows where it went wrong. He called the book One Blood because there's a, there's a verse in Acts chapter 17 that describes all humanity coming from one blood. But the reason I bring him up now is not because of the book that he wrote, but because of his work as a translator. Just as he, uh, his parents did, he, he has given himself to the translation of the gospel in the tongue of many Aboriginal languages. And his goal isn't to bring Western culture to them and force them to learn English. That would be a tragedy. There's no culture or people group outside the kingdom of God, and so he brings the good news of Jesus to them in their own language. So Harris, he was approached by a Nyunga woman a couple of years back, and this woman asked him to translate the Lord's Prayer into their language, and their language is nearly lost. Uh, this woman visits inmates, Aboriginal inmates at their local prison, and her hope was to bring the Lord's Prayer written in their language on pieces of cardboard and give it to the, the inmates. She told me that, this is John Harris speaking, she told me that there are angry men in the jail who would never talk to a Christian about Christian things, but she said they all took a copy of the Lord's Prayer in Neunga. That was in part because of the rarity of finding any written literature in that language, but also says John, because the Lord's Prayer in Nyunga was a symbol of respect for the language. And this is the woman speaking. It told them that their language was real, that it mattered. And the Lord's Prayer in Nyunga also said, God speaks our language. Now, to be someone who gives yourself for outsiders so that they might experience the love of God. To give yourself, give your life for outsiders. What would compel someone to do that? John does it because he knows that God did the same for him. It's that simple. God in Christ went outside the city walls and he was considered by his own people as cursed to bring us Gentile dogs into the people of God to welcome us to the table as children. That's our God. That's how much he loves us, to be considered a curse, to welcome us outsiders in. Which means that we can have an, a humble confidence, a confidence, a humble confidence like the Canaanite woman's. We're, we're not entitled to be God's special possession, but we are. We are the dogs who've been welcomed to the table and there's no room for pride or superiority here. And also it's an identity that goes deeper than any other identity there is, racial or otherwise. Child of God. Humble confidence. But also being God's people, we are compelled to go out and do as God's people are meant to do. We don't want to get it wrong, like the prideful, racist um, response of the disciples. We're called by God to serve outsiders. We're called by God to be light, to seek justice, to lift up those people society likes to put down. We're called by God to do that. 
Before we finish, I think the woman teaches us one more thing. Our society has an ache in its heart. You can see it. It's so open for us to see. Our society wants a place where there's no injustice, racism, or divide. That's what the protests were about. That's what Black Lives Matter is about. Black Lives Matter is about. And this woman had an ache. She had an urgency that only a mother would know to have her daughter healed. Our hope as Christians is not in a politician or a political party as important as they are. They're, they're important for our communal life together. But our focus, our hope that our society might heal is single-mindedly on Jesus. Just as that woman just went after Jesus again and again. I think our society wants the kingdom of God human rights, justice, peace, unity, wants the kingdom of God without the king. But that doesn't work. There is no kingdom without the king. And so as we live through this particular cultural time where we're seeing this divide between the left and the right just open up and where the wound of systemic injustice for indigenous people is, is, is out in the open... We put our hope in Jesus just like the woman kept on crying out. He will heal our divided world just as he healed the woman's daughter. And of course, it's not an either or. Passionate political engagement goes hand in hand with eyes set on Jesus. And our indigenous brothers and sisters show us that. And also the African-American spirituals in America's past, passionate faith, passionate political engagement. And to slightly adjust the Canaanites' cry, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. I speak on behalf of the church. Come, Lord Jesus, come. John Harris, one more quote from him. He says, people need Jesus. That story needs to be in all of the languages. It needs to be everywhere, especially in a world that wants to move away from the church and often deservedly so. They want to turn away from the sins, the arrogance of a church that has gone off track. But the Bible is not the church. The church is full of sinful human beings. The Bible is the word of God and it's all about Jesus. Let's pray.